Welcome to Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, the founder of Climate One. Climate One is a leadership dialogue on energy, the economy, and the environment that discusses the transition to a prosperous and clean energy future. Our guest today is Lester Brown. Mr. Brown started his career as a farmer, growing tomatoes in New Jersey with his younger brother during high school and college. He went on to found the World Watch Institute, the Earth Policy Institute, and to author or co-author more than 50 books. His latest book is Plan B 4.0, Mobilizing to Save Civilization. He truly is a respected elder in the fields of resource, economics, and environmentalism. Please welcome Lester Brown. Thanks, Greg. I'll be drawing heavily on the latest book, Plan B 4.0, which is going to become a movie, by the way. Um, A film crew is now working on a two-part series for public television. It's ScreenScope, Hal and Marilyn Weber. I'm sorry, Wiener, who have produced Journey to Planet Earth for PBS for the last, I don't know, eight or ten years now. One of our funders had the idea that they should go on a book tour with me last summer when I was launching several uh, editions of Plan B 3.0. It was Japan, Korea, Chinese edition, Hindi, Turkish, and Italian. They happened to be some of the early ones that were translated and published. What they didn't realize was that during this three-week period, they would hear the same talk 26 times. And after a week or so, Hal said, you know, I think I can give that talk now. He said, I've been sort of checking myself. And uh, he said, I, um, you know, when you're doing one paragraph, I ask what's the next one. He said, I, I always know. He said, I said, well, Hal, you know, there was a physicist in Europe who was on tour uh, giving a talk about the European space program, drumming up drumming up interest in it, and he said, um, and, and he was being driven from city to city and town to town, and like how this chauffeur said to the physicist after a while, he said, you know, I think I can give that speech, and the physicist sort of laughed, and a few days later, the chauffeur brought it up again, and, and so after a while, the physicist said, well, next Tuesday night, we're going to be in a fairly small town, he said, and we're going to change uniforms. He said, I'm going to put on your chauffeur's uniform, you put on my jacket and tie, and he said, you give the speech. He said, one thing worries me, and that's the Q&A session. The chauffeur said, you know, they always ask the same questions. He says, no problem. So he gave the speech, and he gave it with some enthusiasm. He did it very well. And then came the Q&A, and he was picking them off one by one. And then there was another physicist in the group, and he came up with one of these complex questions. You know, if this, if that, if this, then what happens? You know, how does this affect that sort of thing? And the guy listened for a bit. He said, you know, that sounds like a complex question. He said, it's really, it's it's rather simple. He said, I bet my chauffeur could answer that. (laughs) So anyhow, always have your chauffeur with you. Um, This morning I did a press teleconference on a piece I've written entitled The Copenhagen Food Security Conference. The the 193 delegations going to Copenhagen are thinking about a lot of different things. For some countries, it's rising sea level. The low-lying island countries, for example. 
sea level rises very much, they're toast. Other countries are worrying about heat and drought, higher temperatures, lower rainfall, more drought. Countries in southern Europe, eastern Africa, Australia, for example. Yet another group of countries is worried about more powerful, more destructive storms. The countries of East Asia, where the typhoons are uh, an annual event, and, and countries in the Caribbean, for example, are so, uh, so vulnerable to, um, to hurricanes. But the, what this conference is really about is food security, and I don't think many people realized it yet. This is, this, is, this is the common denominator that brings everything and everyone together. We don't have to go beyond ice melting to see that we're in trouble on the, on the food front. The Greenland ice sheet is melting. The West Antarctic ice sheet is starting to break up. If the Greenland ice sheet goes entirely, sea level rises 23 feet. Now, that won't happen overnight, actually, but it could happen in a couple of centuries. West Antarctic ice sheet goes, sea level goes up 16 feet. But even a three-foot rise in sea level jeopardizes the rice harvest of Asia. A three-foot rise in sea level, the World Bank has a map on this, would inundate half of the rice land in Bangladesh, a country with 160 million people. A three-foot rise in sea level would put a large part of the Mekong Delta underwater. The Mekong Delta produces half the rice in Vietnam, which is the world's number two rice exporter after Thailand. There are another 18 or 20 rice-growing river deltas in Asia that would be affected in varying degrees by just a three-foot rise in sea level. The irony that ice melting in the far north Atlantic, for example, could jeopardize the rice harvest of Asia is not something that we're programmed to, to put together. But the more serious ice melting problem is in the mountains, the melting mountain glaciers. The World Glacier Monitoring Service, located in Switzerland, has recently reported the 18th consecutive year of shrinking mountain glaciers. They look at all the mountain ranges, the Andes, the Rockies, the Alps, the Himalayas, the Tibetan Plateau. They have 30 glaciers that they monitor in great detail distributed among these mountain ranges. The most disturbing of the mountain glaciers is the melting in the Himalayas and on the Tibetan Plateau. It is the ice melt from the glaciers in these two regions that sustains the major rivers of Asia during the dry season and therefore the irrigation systems dependent on those rivers. The Indus, the Ganges, the Yangtze, the Yellow. We forget, or maybe we didn't know, that China is the world's number one wheat producer. India is number two. The U.S. is number three. China's wheat harvest is nearly double our wheat harvest. And in rice, China and India totally dominate the world harvest. What happens 
to the glaciers in the Himalayas and on the Tibetan Plateau. And what happens to the wheat and rice crops in Asia, both of which are large, are extensively irrigated, affects everyone in the world. Affects food prices everywhere, or will affect food prices everywhere. I think for most of us in this country, we think of the glaciers on the Tibetan Plateau as China's problem. They are. But they're also our problem. Because if China comes into the world market for massive quantities of grain, as it already has done for soybeans in the last decade, it'll import 70% of all the soybeans it consumes this year. They come into the world market for grain big time, they will come to this country because we are far and away the world's largest grain exporter. For American consumers, this could be a nightmare scenario because what we're looking at is the possibility of 1.3 billion Chinese with rapidly rising incomes competing with us for our grain harvest, driving up our food prices. Historically, that would have led to restrictions on exports, as it did in the 1970s, when we restricted the export of both grain and soybeans to keep domestic prices from soaring out of control. But China is our banker. Every month, the Treasury Department auctions off Treasury securities in Washington to cover our fiscal deficit. This is how we're financing our fiscal deficit. Today, China holds roughly $1 trillion worth of U.S. Treasury paper. $1 trillion, that's $1,000 It is huge. We will share our grain harvest with the Chinese. I don't think there's any question about that, regardless of how it affects food prices here. Again, who would have thought glaciers melting on the Tibetan Plateau could affect prices at our supermarket checkout counters? These two examples not only demonstrate the effects of ice melting on food security, but they also give a sense of how we're all tied together now, economically and environmentally, important, importantly, climatically. In Plan B 4.0, one of the principal components is stabilizing climate. In devising the plan for cutting carbon emissions, we did not ask what would be politically popular, but instead we asked what, what sort of a cut how much and how fast do we have to cut carbon emissions if we want to have a decent shot at saving the Greenland ice sheet? How fast do we have to cut coal-fired power plants if we want to save at least the larger glaciers remaining in the Himalayas and on the Tibetan Plateau? When you ask that question, you conclude that we need to cut carbon emissions 80%, not by 2050, the game will be over long before that, but by 2020, 80% by 2020. That sounds like a lot. It is. It is very close to 
a wartime mobilization. But there's some exciting things happening in the world now that make this goal much more credible today than it was two years ago when we first published it in Plan B 3.0. We are seeing, for example, the development of renewable energy resources on a scale and at a rate that we could not have imagined even one year ago. Three examples. Texas. Texas has 8,000 megawatts of wind-generating capacity, overtook California about three years ago to become the leading wind generator in this country. It has another couple thousand under construction and several tens of thousands of megawatts in development. Altogether, according to an energy research firm, it totals 53,000 megawatts of wind-generating capacity. Think 53 coal-fired power plants. This is huge. When these wind farms are completed, they will generate more electricity than the 24 million people living in Texas can consume. And what's so ironic about this is Texas is not on the environmental cutting edge among states. It's oil country. But, but it's oil guys who are doing a lot of the investment in wind, because it makes sense. I'm not even sure they, many of them know what the Kyoto Protocol is. They're investing in wind, because that's where they think the future is. China. China is a latecomer to wind energy, partly because they wanted to have most of the components of the wind turbines and so forth produced domestically, and they had no background in the industry at all. So it's taken them a while. But in each of the last four years, they have doubled their wind-generating capacity. They will double it again this year, making it five in a row. But beyond this extraordinary growth and momentum, a semi-government agency has, has coordinated the development of what they call their wind base program. At this point, it consists of six wind mega-complexes ranging from 10,000 megawatts in the smallest to 30,000 megawatts in the largest. These six together total more than 100,000 megawatts of wind-generating capacity. Again, think 100 coal-fired power plants. This is huge. A U.S.-China research team, which recently completed an inventory of China's resources, China's wind resources. It was led by Michael McElroy of Harvard. And they pointed out that China has enough harnessable wind energy to increase its current electricity generation sevenfold. That's wind alone. They also have solar, of course. They have geothermal. But wind alone would do that. But the big one, the really big one, is coming in Europe. For years now, maybe for the better part of 20 years, I can't remember, I've been hearing from the Club of Rome about a proposal they've had to harness the solar thermal energy resources of North Africa to provide electricity for Europe. At two conferences in Europe last year, I heard this proposal, one in Rome and one in northern Germany. And 
Well, it seemed to me like a good idea. It just never seemed to get any traction. And then on July 13th of this year, there was an announcement made by Munich Re, Munich Reinsurance, which is the largest of the reinsurance companies. They announced that a consortium of companies, this is a German-led consortium. It includes, in addition to Munich Re, Deutsche Bank, Siemens, ABB, E.ON, several other well-known companies, and one Algerian company. They have created a new entity, a new organization, whose mission is to devise a strategy to harness the solar resources of North Africa to produce electricity for transmission by transoceanic cable under the Mediterranean to Europe, and a financial plan for doing so. They announced last week that they expect the first electricity in this project to start moving under the Mediterranean in 2015. Algeria actually has already signed an agreement with Germany. This was kind of a forerunner to this big project. The Algerians point out that in their desert, they have enough harnessable wind energy, sorry, enough harnessable solar energy to power the world economy. That's not a mistake. This point appears in the energy literature with some frequency when it's noted that the the sunlight striking the earth in one hour has enough energy to power the world economy for one year. A German firm that has researched this in some detail says they think that half of Europe's electricity could economically be produced with solar thermal power plants in the deserts of North Africa. Half of Europe's electricity, I mean, that's like 300,000 megawatts. I mean, it is huge. Again, we've never seen energy thinking on this scale before with, with any of the fossil fuels, for example. And suddenly, uh, things are just expanding in a way that we could not imagine. The interesting thing about this latest initiative, this consortium of companies, is that there's n there are no governments or government agencies in that consortium. It's entirely a private initiative driven by Munich Re and their, con their concern about risk and the insurance industry. They are a reinsurer. They insure the operating insurance companies. And they're worried that climate change could, could take the whole industry down. So we're beginning to see responses <clears throat> on a scale and in a way that we've simply not seen before. And these ones I've been mentioning have all just unfolded, certainly the Chinese and the European one, just in the last year or so. <clears throat> There's an enormous potential for increasing energy efficiency. Most of us know that if you replace an incandescent light bulb with a compact fluorescent, I think we've got a mix here. Um, if you replace incandescent, an incandescent with a compact fluorescent, you can reduce the electricity use by 
If you go from an incandescent to an LED, light-emitting diode, a more recent and more advanced technology, and if you combine that with smart sensor that turns lights off when there's no one in a room, then we're looking at a reduction of 90% in, in electricity use from incandescents to LEDs with smart sensors. That would enable us to close 705 of the world's 2,400 coal-fired power plants. Mayor Villagrosa, Los Angeles. I'm not sure I have his name right. Um, but Los Angeles is planning to convert 130,000 streetlights, the streetlights in the city, to LEDs. It'll take them eight years to get back the cost because they're more expensive than traditional streetlights. But after that eight years, they will be saving $11 million a year on the Los Angeles electricity bill. I just mentioned that as an example of how this technology is beginning to catch on. The key to all this, to making things happen fast enough I think, is to get the market to tell the truth. The market does many things well, but it does not do a good job of incorporating indirect costs, like the costs of air pollution or climate change associated with burning fossil fuels. And what I think is needed is that we need to restructure the tax system. Lower income taxes, raise the carbon tax. No change in the amount of tax we pay. Keep that the same. Just tax labor less and carbon emissions more. Then we can get the market to tell the truth. And once we do that, then change will, be, will come even faster. And my final point is that Cutting carbon emissions 80% by 2020 is clearly going to take a huge effort, but it is entirely doable. I go back from time to time and reread some of the economic history of World War II, December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor. January 6, 1942, a month later, President Roosevelt's State of the Union Address. And in that address, he said, we're going to produce 45,000 tanks, 60,000 planes, 20,000 artillery guns, and several thousand ships. And people were just, couldn't get their mind around these things because we were still in a depression mode economy in early 1942. What Roosevelt and his colleagues knew at that time was that the largest concentration, of, single concentration of industrial power in the world was in the U.S. automobile industry. Because even during the Depression, we were making two or three million cars a year. So after, after he had announced these goals, he called in the leaders of the industry and said, because you guys represent such a large share of our industrial capacity, we're going to rely heavily on you to help us reach these arms production goals. And they said, well, 
Mr. President, we're going to do everything we can, but it'll be a real stretch producing cars and all these arms, too. He said, you don't understand. We're going to ban the sale of private automobiles in the United States. And that's exactly what happened. From the beginning of April 1942 until the end of 1944, nearly three years, there were essentially no cars produced in the United States. And we exceeded every one of those arms production goals. We didn't produce 60,000 planes. We produced 229,000 planes, fighters, bombers, reconnaissance planes, troop transports, cargo transports. I mean, it was extraordinary. Even today, the idea of producing 229,000 planes is, is rather intimidating. But we did it. And the point of, the, of this World War II example is that it didn't take decades to restructure the U.S. industrial economy. It didn't take years. We did it in a matter of months. And if we could do that then, imagine what we could do now if we got serious about raising the energy efficiency of our economy and, and investing in, in assembly line production of wind turbines, for example, using some of the automobile assembly plants that have been closed. Just as in World War II, um, Ford Motor Company in its, um, forgotten the name of the plant, in 78 acres the plant covered, was rolling out, I think it was B-24 bombers off the assembly line. It was just an extraordinary thing to see. If you saw Ken Burns' series a year ago on the war, there was a shot of that, of the bombers rolling off that, uh, is it Willow Run? The Willow Run plant in, uh, in Michigan. The final point is, we as environmentalists have been talking about saving the planet for a long time. But I've come to realize that the planet is going to be around for some time to come. The threat is not to the planet. It's going to survive. The question is whether civilization, as we know it, will survive. That's what's really at stake now. And the question is, and, and the point is, saving civilization is not a spectator sport. It's something we all have to get involved in. It means picking an issue and going to work on it, whether it's closing coal-fired power plants or working with population groups to help stabilize world population or developing a world-class recycling program. Actually, San Francisco already has that. Um, but pick an issue that's important to you and go to work on it. Get some friends together and see what you can do. We've, we don't have a lot of time. We're facing a lot of deadlines, but we don't know exactly where they are because they're determined by natural thresholds. When do we reach the point of no return on the melting of the Greenland ice sheet? The answer is we don't know. Nature decides that. Nature is the timekeeper, but we can't see the clock. Are those questions you're reading, Greg? Yes. Okay. So, if you're done. Well, thanks to our thanks to Lester Brown, founder of the Earth Policy Institute and author of Plan B 4.0, mobilizing to save civilization for his comments today here at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we have a number of questions. Um, you mentioned that environmentalists have been talking about saving the earth 
for, for decades. And one question is, people such as Paul Ehrlich have been warning about food and population crises for decades, and yet technology and other progress uh, changed the game and allowed for increase in crop productivity, controlling population growth, and other practices. So for people who say we've heard this doom and gloom before, um, what do you say that how is it different this time and to people who might say, well, innovation or ingenuity or technology will, will pull us out of this one again? Well, first of all, first of all, I'm not sure it's pulled us out of the last one yet. Uh, one of the things that's happened on the food front is that we've devised all sorts of short-term methods of overpumping aquifers, overplowing land, um, over-harvesting fisheries, et cetera, et cetera, trying to meet our short-term demands. If you subtract out the unsustainable part of food production, then Paul's food crisis came some time ago. But even without that, we have now moved into a situation where – um, the number of hungry people in the world, which was declining from roughly 1970 through the, the, the latter part of the last century, until in the late 90s it bottomed out and it started to move back up. And then la it, it bottomed out at about 825 million. Last year it, it went over 900 million. This year it's gone over a billion, and it looks as though it's going to keep climbing. That, to me does not suggest that we've, we've managed that problem yet. Um, and it's the momentum it has. It's the forces driving it. I talked about ice melting. Um, I could have talked about falling water tables and the effect that that's already having in some countries and will be having in other countries, for example. So while I think technology has an important role to play, whether it's in stabilizing climate or, or uh, <clears throat> Uh, ensuring future food security, um, it's going to take a lot more than that. It's going to take um, the right kinds of policies and, and investments and, and recognizing that population growth cannot continue indefinitely without civilization being in trouble. So if I understand that, you're saying that uh, we bought some time and that the Productivity grains that you mentioned, uh, I guess grains per hectare tripled from the 50s to 2008. You're saying that that happened, but it's not sustainable, that it will, will go down irrespective of climate change just because of you're talking, what, about fertilizers and other, other <clears throat> methods that, have, that worked for a while but won't, can't work indefinitely? Not that, it, not that it will necessarily go down, um, but that it won't go up fast enough. Um, and that's what we're seeing now. World food production is still increasing, though more slowly, and not fast enough to keep up with demand. That's why we had the tripling of wheat, rice, corn, soybean prices between the beginning of 2007 and, and mid-2008. Uh, and it took the worst economic meltdown since the Great Depression to, to break that climb in prices and, and start them back down. It, it greatly reduced demand, in some cases, for the wrong reasons. But... Uh, I haven't talked at all about water and its effect on, on food security. Um, we have some questions. We'll get, we'll get to that. But do, so do you think that um, that commodity bubble was fueled partly by biofuels? Some people think that the food for fuel tension were part of that. How much of a factor of the commodities bubble was, uh, was biofuels? 
Historically, we had one source of additional demand. From the beginning of agriculture up until World War II, basically, it was population growth. And then after World War II, as people started moving up the the, the food chain in the industrial countries, including this one, uh, we began converting more and more grain into, into animal protein. That was a second source of demand. And then just some years ago, after Katrina, when gasoline prices took off in this country, we saw an explosion in the uh, demand for or the use of grain to produce fuel for cars. This year, we will produce just over 400 million tons of grain a hundred million tons of that will go to ethanol distilleries to produce fuel for cars. And what we've set in motion is a situation where people and cars are competing for the same grain resources. Um, and, and that's a dangerous situation because the average income of automobile owners in the world is about $30,000 a year. The average income of the two billion poorest people in the world is under $3,000 a year. So it's easy to see who wins in that competition. And it's not the hungry people. Do you think we've learned the biofuel lesson now that the move toward algae-based fuels and, and, and other food, uh, biofuels that don't compete with food, do you think we've got, well, learned that lesson and moved beyond that? Um, I don't know that algae don't compete with food. You, algae depend on photosynthesis like any other plant. So you have to have large areas to, to collect the sunlight. And algae are not super uh, efficient in photosynthesis or like any other plant. So um, I doubt. With the fish for the, the fish to consider some of that food perhaps. What's that? The fish. They're, they're, they are part of the ecosystem. They're right. food for somebody, maybe not for part people. Part of the food chain. I don't expect that algae is going to be a big thing, even though ExxonMobil is betting $600 million on it. Um, what I think is going to be big, and let me just give an example to illustrate this, I think we're going to move toward an electrically driven transport system. And the reason for that is, the, is that, one, electric motors are, are three times as efficient as, as internal combustion engines in the use of energy, number one. But number two, if you or a farmer in northern Iowa, you can plant an acre of, of land of corn, and that will produce maybe maybe $800 worth of corn or $1,200 worth of ethanol. But that same acre with a wind turbine on it will produce $300,000 worth of electricity. Imagine how many cars you could run on one, one wind turbine. So there's... Photosynthesis cannot compete with solar energy harnessed directly through solar cells or solar thermal power plants or um, through, through harnessing wind energy. And why aren't corn farmers uh, pulling up their corn and putting windmills in, or are they? Um, the great advantage of wind is that a wind farm actually occupies only 1% of the land area in the wind farm where the turbines are actually located. So... Farmers can use the other 99% to grow corn or wheat or run cattle or whatever they want. I mean, it's a great double cropping system, and, and that's why farmers in the, in the Great Plains, or ranchers in the Great Plains, uh, communities go crazy over wind farms there. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a NIMBY problem, not in my backyard. It's a PIMBY problem. Put it in my backyard because they get the royalties from those wind turbines, and they'll earn far more from those than they will from cattle sales. Well, that's not what the people on Cape Cod are saying. They, there's a NIMBY thing going on. There are no there. ranchers on Cape Cod. That's the problem. Uh, need some ranchers on Cape Cod. But I, uh, I think we're going to get that wind farm off Cape Cod. 
But Boone Pickens was with us earlier this year, and even he's having trouble uh, getting financing for his wind farms. And if a billionaire can't get financing, can an Iowa farmer get financing for a wind farm? We also need to talk about the the transmission, which you haven't mentioned yet, uh, with regard to whether it's northern Africa or anywhere else, that you can put in lots of wind, but if you can't get it to market, uh, it's no good. Um, Boone Pickens' problem is he got caught on the wrong side of, uh, of the price of oil in his hedge fund and lost a lot of his wealth. Uh, so he's now having to borrow to uh, do most of the things he would like to do. Um, the reality is that last year we brought 102 wind farms online with over 8,000 megawatts of generating capacity. This year it will be around 90 wind farms coming online. So the growth in the wind industry is, is, is huge um, and is continuing um, uh, despite the economic downturn. And, and once we come out of the downturn, capital becomes a little – more widely available, it, it's going to grow even faster. And what about the intermittency, the storage? Wind doesn't blow uh, all the time, so the sun doesn't shine at night. Um, how do you think that's going to be solved? You know, if someone had thought about this problem when we started nuclear power, um, I mean, nuclear power is very risky because you have a 1,000-megawatt wind plant, a um, nuclear plant, and an accident goes down, you lose a 1,000 megawatts just like that. And if you're a small utility, you'd be dead, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we actually figured out ways of doing that. I mean, one way of doing it would be always to build two nuclear power plants, you know, so you have one to turn on if one goes down. Well, that didn't make economic sense, so we figured out how to move electricity around and deal with that. Same is true with wind. Um, there's a team of uh, scientists at Stanford who have modeled the U.S. wind economy, and they point out that with a national grid, wind becomes baseload because if you, if you, if you realize two things, one – no two wind farms have identical wind profiles. So if you have one wind farm, it fluctuates like this. If you have two, it fluctuates like this. If you have 40, it hardly fluctuates at all because they offset each other, assuming they're not all in exactly the same place. Um, so the, the intermittency problem is something that has to be taken to, into account. But the advantage is we know what the wind is going to be more or less tomorrow. I mean, it, not precisely, but we have a sense. We don't know when an accident will come to a nuclear power plant. So there's, a, there's much less uncertainty with wind than there is with nuclear power, for example. But doesn't wind blow more at night when the demand is less? It depends on whether we're running our cars on the electricity or not. If we are, that's when we'll plug them in. And if there is more wind at night than during the day, and that varies by area, but if there is, then that's when we program our household appliances. You know, the dishwasher runs at 3 in the morning instead of 8 in the evening. You, me- you mentioned water, and we have a number of questions on, on, on water. Uh, and this one reads, while food security is an important component of climate change, so is water security. We can live with higher grain prices, but people in the Himalayas cannot survive without uh, water from glaciers. Why has water security not gotten more press in the climate change discussion? One of the reasons is that falling water tables, for example, and water tables, tables are falling in countries that contain half the world's people, um, are not visual. You can't photograph them. If you have rainforests being burned off, you can, you know, you can show it on the nightly news and you understand it. Um, but you can't photograph a falling water table, and we often discover falling water tables only when the wells go dry. Um, but the, we, we forget that we drink, we drink about four liters of water a day in one form or another. 
But the food we consume each day requires 2,000 liters of water to produce or 500 times as much. So getting enough water to drink is not going to be a problem. Getting clean water may be and is for a lot of people. But it's the amount of water it takes to produce our food where the, where the bind is, is coming. Um, some will remember that the Saudis had an oil export embargo in the 1970s, led an Arab oil export embargo. And after that embargo, they realized they were vulnerable to a grain export embargo. So they began looking around for ways of expanding their, their food production. They have almost no rainfall. And using their oil drilling technology, they found a fossil aquifer that's a half mile down. And they started pumping it. And for more than 20 years, they were self-sufficient in wheat. And last year they announced, and this is, was interesting as a public announcement, they said, our aquifer is almost gone. We're going to phase out wheat production. They've been supporting it four times the world market level. They, they said we're going to phase it out one-eighth each year until by 2016 we're out of the grain production business and they'll be importing all their grain. Um, Saudi Arabia can do that. Yemen, which is nearby and which is overpumping its aquifers, which are replenishable, but they're overpumping them at about four times the rate of recharge, so the table, water tables are going down fast. They won't have the options that the Saudis have. They may not be able to compete in world markets when they have to import most of their grain, which is not, not very far away. Um, India, World Bank study, points out that 100 and, um, that 15% of India's people today are fed by overpumping. That's 175 million people. We've done the similar estimate for China. It's 130 million Chinese being fed with water from wells that are going to be going dry before too long. Uh, that's 300 million people between those two countries. You can look at all the other countries, Pakistan, Iran, uh, Mexico, other countries that are overpumping and um, and get some sense of the totals. But we're... we're we're in a food bubble right now, and I don't think most people quite realize it yet, largely because of, of the, over, uh, the overuse of water resources. It wasn't too long ago there was a drought in Australia, and I recall there being a rationing of rice at Costco in, in San Francisco, and yet that was quite striking uh, for someone who didn't live through the, the depression or rationing, earlier rationing, and yet we seem to have forgotten about that. Um, are people in Washington at all aware of the food security issue that you're talking about, people in, 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 in the new administration? You know, one of the things I've noticed about the food situation is that people look at it, the people who pay attention to it, look at it through a kind of a, a narrow agricultural lens that has to do with soil fertility and, and breeding high-yielding crops and using fertilizer and, 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 and water if you can get it for irrigation. But they don't look at the big picture. And the thing that's changed about food security is that other ministries may have more effect on future food security than the Ministry of Agriculture. For example, when I was launching Plan B in China June a year ago, um, I was talking to a group of government officials, and I suggested to them that they they build a phone line that would connect the Ministry of Agriculture and the Ministry of Energy, because the decisions being made in the Ministry of Energy were going to have a greater effect on China's long-term food security than those being made in the Ministry of Agriculture. I mean, I did it sort of with tongue-in-cheek, but they they got the point. Um, 
And, and I think that's one of the reasons why they're suddenly in this huge push to develop their, their wind resources. You write about population and education, uh, and, and let's talk a little bit about that, the idea that educating people and stabilizing fertility rates is one of the best things to do for, for I guess, for poverty and certainly uh, for climate. Uh, Secretary Clinton uh, w- has worked a lot on, on women's issues. Is there any evidence that she has, has she done anything on this issue, on educating um, particularly women in developing countries with an eye toward climate and poverty? Well, certainly she understands the importance of educating women. And, I mean, every country for which we have data indicates that the more education women have, the the fewer children they have, the smaller the families get, simply because they have more options. And I I, I worry a bit about the Islamic fundamentalists depriving uh, girls of education because that leaves them with the only sort of road to self-fulfillment is having children. And and I'm afraid they're going to get locked into a demographic trap that they won't be able to uh, to get out of. But educating, um, uh, I mean, first of all, make sure that children everywhere get at least an elementary school education. That is a UN goal and, and one that I think we need to be pushing even harder on. And And that includes girls as well as boys. And you talk about stabilization. I think you, you say uh, $8 billion by 2050. How exactly do you, do you think that's going to happen? Most projections call for, I think, it's $9 billion by, by 2050. So you're, you're calling for, you know, what specifically how would that happen? Um, I don't think we're ever going to see the $9 billion plus or the $11 billion by the end of the century or what have you um, for the simple reason that systems are already breaking down with – 6.7 billion people. And um, what's, what's going to happen is we're either going to get our act together and accelerate the shift to smaller families and bring it to a halt before we get to 8 billion, or we fail to do that and mortality rates begin to rise. And there are already now a couple countries in Africa where the demographers are projecting an actual decline in population size by, by 2050, not because of falling fertility, but because of rising mortality. And that, that's just a very few countries now, but that group could get larger in the years ahead if we can't get some of these trends turned around. But in industrialized countries, when fertility rates decline uh, because of the, the way we, we fund our entitlement programs intergenerationally, uh, if, there's, if there's a larger baby boom population and a smaller population basically working to support them, that's viewed as a severe economic problem. So uh, stabilizing fertility rates creates economic stress that, pe- that people see as a big concern. Well, um, the thing to keep in mind is that the, the social forces that lead to um, a smaller uh, working age group to support mm-hmm. the, the older is a result of increasing life expectancy. And we still have this idea that you retire at 60 or 62 or 65 or whatever, some, some cases even lower than that. But most of the people I know who are between their 70s and 80s are pretty healthy and could still be working at least part-time, if not full-time. And, and many would be happier doing it because they're not not that satisfied um, at this point. So I think we need to rethink the whole idea of retirement. 
And that comes up in Congress. It's, it's, it's pretty politically contentious, the idea of raising the retirement age. Uh, AARP gets activated and all sorts of things, and, and seniors vote. So that's politically radioactive, what you're talking about. Well, not necessarily. I, I think we just should give people options and, and have various options that, that we can pursue. I mean, for some people, maybe retirement at 65 would be a godsend if their health is not good and so forth. But for others... Uh, who want to work till they're 80, for example, uh, let them work. I sometimes feel sorry for the 70-year-olds I see, you know, working the cashier uh, counter at, uh, at Walmart or somewhere like that. You really wonder, do they really want to be there, or is it more economic necessity? Or they're just trying to make ends meet, you know. Yeah. Um, we have a I know if, if I had to retire, I would be rather unhappy. You're not a big golfer. No. I'm a runner, though. Persistence pays story. I started running competitively 61 years ago when I was a 14-year-old in high school, sophomore. And finally, two years ago, I achieved national ranking as a 10-miler in my age group. I was ranked fourth. And this year, I moved up to third in the 75 to 79 age group. So there's still two guys I haven't beaten, but I'm either going to, to beat them or outlast them, one or the other. <laughs> Do you uh, do you eat lots of grains and carbo load before you run? <laughs> Actually, the the national championship now, the ten mile championships, the cher- cherry blossom ten mile, and it um, it's run at eight o'clock in the morning around the cherry blossoms in the tidal basin downtown Washington. Um, and um, I, I usually have pasta the night before. That seems to do it. Good. Um, we have a question from the audience that says, in the book, The Skeptical Environmentalist, you were criticized for a number of inaccuracies promulgated by the World Watch Institute. Were those criticisms justified? How would you respond to that? I don't think so. We've, we've footnote things pretty carefully. Um, um, an indirect answer to that question is that the, um, the skeptical environmentalist, Bjorn Lundberg's book, which came out several years ago, maybe close to 10 now, I can't remember, um, was reviewed carefully by a group of Danish scientists because they were concerned about about it. And there's a whole website devoted to corrections of his writing on this. So um, he's not in a very good position to uh, to criticize others. He's been here, and I think we have an invitation to, he may come back again. Um, we have a question also. Are polar bears and their destruction and habitat a good message for the environmental movement to illustrate the effects of, of climate change? Uh, and as one who I personally, you probably everyone in the audience does, gets lots of direct mail from environmental groups with polar bears on it. And that's polar bears, uh, for a bad pun, are very polarizing because some people are really moved by them and other people are disgusted by the overuse or exploitation of polar bears. What's your thought on that as an icon for for climate change. You know, the direct mail works best with simple messages, and whether it's, you know, it used to be the panda bear, and now it's the, the polar bear. Um, it could be tigers or elephants or whales or... Write know. a check or this bear will die. Yeah. Right. Right. And um, um, it, it works for direct mail, um, but it also sacrifices the more important issue. I mean, the important thing for me about the shrinking of the Arctic sea ice and the melting of the Greenland ice sheet is its effect on the rice harvest of Asia, for example. Um, 
I think, I mean, clearly polar bears are being adversely affected by this loss of ice, no question about it. Um, but I would not necessarily rank it at the top of the list of consequences uh, there. Let's talk a little bit about rice. Um, you, you write about, about Vietnam and as a rice exporter and the impact of, of water shortages. Uh, we talked more about wheat than rice. So let's, let's spin out. What would the, the water, declining water supply in Asia and how would that affect uh, rice markets? What would that look like? Well, one of the interesting things about rice, as you know, it's we have two dominant food staples in the world, wheat and rice, is that rice would be affected by rising sea level. It would be affected by the, by the melting mountain glaciers because rice is more dependent on irrigation than wheat. I mean, you can grow wheat as a dry land crop, as we do mostly in this country. Um, so rice is being affected by by both of those trends, along with um, any changes in, in rainfall and, and the increase in, in temperature. Uh, I didn't talk about the direct effect of higher temperatures on grain yields, but a study in the Philippines points out, and, and pollination is the most vulnerable part of the plant's life cycle, but in the Philippines, um, they, they, they looked at temperature and pollination rates, and it, at 93 degrees Fahrenheit, you get essentially 100% pollination. But then as you move up, the pollination declines. When you get to 104 degrees, you get essentially zero pollination and a total crop failure. So rice is vulnerable um, to uh, climate change in, in, in more ways than wheat is. Um, and I think it is the rice consumers of Asia and world rice um, prices that will reflect this. So, <laughs> excuse me, um, I expect that we're going to see um, a tightening rice supply um, in, in the world that will lead to uh, chronically higher and, in fact, probably chronically rising rice prices. And how does that affect uh, protein or, or meat prices? Some people, Dr. Pachari, has called on people who cons uh, are concerned about climate to consume uh, less meat, and yet the growing middle classes in India and China are, are craving and consuming more protein. So how are the, the, the grain prices going to feed into uh, the, the meat and, and protein markets? Well, the higher the price of grain and soybeans, um, the the higher the prices of meat and milk and eggs and the things that people want to consume more of. And one of the things that happens when you get a rapid rise in grain prices is, even in societies like this, you get a, usually get a drop in meat consumption um, overall and a shift from higher, the more grain-intensive meats like feedlot beef to chicken, for example, which is, uses, is much more efficient in, in converting grain into, into animal protein. Question from the audience. What are your thoughts on the Waxman-Markey and the Boxer-Carey legislation neither meet your goal of 30% reductions by, by 2020? Did you say 30%? This was 80%. Sorry, this 80%. I'm, 80%. This looks like 80% by 2020. Okay. <clears throat> One of the things that concerns me is I don't think most legislators on the Hill are really on top of what's happening in the world and understand um, the sense of urgency that you get from Jim Hansen, for example, or Regenda Pachauri, um, or many other uh, leading climate scientists who now, who are now um, 
uh, almost obsessed with the urgency of, of, of moving quickly uh, to, uh, to cut uh, carbon emissions. And I note with the, you know, the House and the Senate talking about a 17% or a 20% cut in carbon emissions, House 17, Senate 20, uh, by 2020. Well, the interesting thing is that during the time Congress has been debating this, and it actually goes back to the McCain-Lieberman bill of mm-hmm. a year and a half or so ago, during this period they've been debating carbon emissions have dropped 9% in this country. Um, I mean, we're halfway. Part of that's the recession. Part of it is the recession. The major part of it is recession, but there's another part that's not. And what we have seen um, in the last two years is a 10% drop in oil use and an 11% drop in coal use. Um, and I think both those trends are going to continue. That, we're, that is, they're, they're going to go down. And, and they're... We forget how many things are now in the policy pipeline that are going to reduce carbon emissions. For example, we have the um, automobile fuel economy standards adopted in February or announced in February. Um, We have um, appliance efficiency standards. I mean, one of the things that most people don't know is that for several years now, the Department of Energy has failed to translate climate – I'm sorry, failed to – translate congressional legislation on appliance efficiency standards into regulatory standards that the industry could use and and would have to respond to. So there's, I mean, they've been sandbagging with the approval of Bush and Cheney, of course, both of whom were from the oil industry. So what we've got is a situation where there's a huge backlog of appliance efficiency standards now being implemented, which is going to have effect. We have this is not a federal thing, but 35 states now with RPSs, including states like... Renewable um, electricity standards. Right. Illinois wants to get 25% of the electricity from renewable sources by 2020. New York, 24%. California now, 33%. These are all going to lead to reductions in carbon emissions. And then we have um, the incentives to invest in, in wind and solar and geothermal, which are going to lead to some extraordinary growth in, in each of those energy uh, sources. Um, we have um, um, we have the government, federal government, setting its own carbon reduction goals. And it was interesting the way Obama went about this. He didn't set a goal for the federal government across the board. He's asking each of the agencies, each of the departments of government, to come up with their own. And you know no one wants to be on the bottom of that list. And they also no. for purchasing also. Um, and Well, things might be going positively in the U.S. Uh, people such as the Energy Information Agency say that petroleum use will continue to grow. It will be a, a shrinking portion of the overall energy pie. But because of Brazil, India, China, et cetera, we can be uh, economical uh, here. But the reality is that petroleum supply and demand will grow worldwide. Do you agree? I don't think the supply is going to grow much more. I think we're very close to peak oil now. There's so many old oil fields where production is dropping. It takes a lot of effort just to, just to avoid a decline. Um, a lot of geologists think oil actually peaked a couple of years ago. If you, the, the numbers include ethanol, the oil numbers. They include that if, if you get them from the International Energy Agency. If you subtract out ethanol, then oil probably peaked in October of 2007, I think, according to our calculations at least. Um, I mean, unless it suddenly goes up, and I, I don't think it will. Um, so then the question is, 
how do we deal with this? I think this country is clearly on the right track. Um, I mean, one of the things I haven't talked about is the U.S. automobile fleet is starting to shrink. This year, there will be roughly 10 million new cars sold. There will be 14 million cars scrapped. That means the automobile sector will have a 40% steel surplus, 14 million over 10 million. It's actually more than that because the ones being scrapped are heavier than the, than the new ones being sold. So what we have in thinking about cutting carbon emissions is one of the three major steel-consuming sectors, the other two being construction and appliance manufacturing, we have one of those actually generating a steel surplus, and it's an energy-efficient steel surplus because recycling uses only a third as much energy as, as producing mm-hmm. steel from virgin ore. So this is going to lead to a substantial reduction in carbon emissions, but it's not in the models, in the economic models that try to project carbon emissions. Um, it looks to me as though the U.S. automobile fleet is going to shrink now for several years, um, and it will shrink this year by almost 2%. I mean, these are very substantial numbers. And when you combine them with increasing fuel efficiency and more investment in public transportation, which we're getting in almost every major city in the country now, um, things are changing, I think, a lot faster than most realize. And the congressional goals of 20% will be, will be laughable two years from now. We kind of skated by a direct answer to Wax and Markey. Is it better than nothing? My own sense is that nothing might be better. That would be quite controversial among your environmental friends. Not all of them. Not all of them, and fewer and fewer of them. Um, So you think the tide is turning against cap-and-trade? Yeah. There's a lot of concern about it now. I mean, whether ExxonMobil is clearly not not supporting cap-and-trade anymore. And the reason is... Because of the well, I don't think they ever they ever did. They wanted tax. Some of the other oil suppliers wanted cap right. and trade. Yeah. Well, in any event, the reason that ExxonMobil does not like cap and trade is because they can't predict the price of carbon. With the tax restructuring, reducing income taxes and phasing in a rise in, in carbon taxes, they would know what the future price of carbon would be. Um, so that uncertainty is beginning to to affect. Um, I think more and more, more and more uh, companies and investors, um, and and the the ways of gaming, cap and trade are so uh, so extensive that it um, it just may not be a viable option. We had uh, Fred Smith, the chairman and founder of FedEx, was here on the stage a few months ago, and he said cap and trade can be lobbied, gamed, scammed. He used a whole string of words uh, in his support for a tax. The other thing is the offsets. Uh, what do you think about the credibility of offsets, which are instrumental to Waxman-Markey, the idea that you can uh, create a carbon sink in Brazil or somewhere and offset emissions here? Heaven help us. I mean, if you think you can game things at the national level, wait till you get to the international level. We have a question uh, from the audience about taxes. If we shift our carbon... If I shift our tax base to carbon from income, what happens when carbon use drops? Then you return to taxing income, or we just keep shifting to other externalities? Is it realistic or sustainable to tax carbon? Um, The basic principle here is that you reduce tax on goods and increase tax on bads. We run out of carbon to tax. There will probably be other things that um, that that are not desirable and and Congress will find things for sure. Right, but... I mean, I'm sure they will, but but just as a, 
Uh, there have always been things uh, on the environmental front that, that have negative effects, and there are lots of them today. Um, and anything we can do to discourage those through getting the market to tell the truth. I mean, all we're trying to do here is to get the market to be honest. And right now it's not because it does not – the market does a lot of things well, but one of the things it does not do well is incorporate the indirect costs of burning gasoline or coal or what have you. It doesn't include anything for climate change, though that may be the biggest cost component of all. Um, it simply – it just means the bill goes to the next generation, that's all. So – I think we'll always have something to tax. We're at the end of our time, and there are a couple of questions regarding uh, young people and, and youth, and I'd like to combine these two. Uh, there seems to be a large number of young people desperately trying to figure out how they can make a difference in our society. And so it's a question about what you were doing when you were in your 30s and your advice to them. And another one is if you could teach three points about sustainable water use to our millennial generation, what would that be? The, um, because we eat so much water, anything we do to move down the food chain, and I'm not saying everyone has to become a, a, a vegan, for example, but moving down the food, food chain, which for some of us would be good for our own health anyhow, uh, reduces energy use, it reduces water use, um, and, and that would be probably the biggest single thing any of us could do. To what does that mean, moving down the food chain? So um, Consuming less meat um, and uh, meat, milk, eggs, consuming less of that, um, of, of those products and more fruits and vegetables and whole grains and so forth. Um, so that would create not only a healthier population, but it would reduce substantially both the energy and the water use used to produce our food. And how about advice for the millennial generation on water use? We had Governor Schwarzenegger with us a few weeks ago, and he went on quite a riff about uh, how his his children take uh, showers that are too long, and he monitors their shower use. Uh, so, so other than that, uh, what would advice on water conservation? Well, I mentioned the dietary way of, of reducing mm -hmm. uh, water consumption, which is the really big one. Um, another is. Um, and, 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 and this goes beyond personal consumption, but shifting from uh, uh, thermal-powered uh, thermal power plants that are fueled by coal, for example, take a lot of water for cooling. Um, and if you have a wind farm, you don't, you don't need any water at all. So simply shifting from coal to wind greatly reduces water use. Um, and then at the personal level... Um, I mean, we get this idea we have to take a shower every day, you know, every 24 hours. Why every 24 hours? Why not every 12 hours or every 36 hours or something? I don't know. I find that um, uh, I take a sh I, I work out three or four times a week, and that's when I shower. I don't routinely shower every morning, and I still have friends. <laughs> Sounds like a European. <laughs> so, um, our thanks to Lester Brown, uh, founder of the Earth Policy Institute and author of Plan B 4.0, mobilizing to save civilization for his comments here at Climate One today. Thank you. Thank you all. Well.